0: Section 4 of Commentary on the Epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians by John Calvin Translated by William Pringle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 and you, hath he quickened, who are dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And you, who are dead this is an of the former statements that is an exposition accompanied by an illustration to bring home more effectually to the ephesians the general doctrine of divine grace he reminds them of their former condition this application consists of two parts ye were formerly lost but now god by his grace has rescued you from destruction and here we must observe that in laboring to give an impressive view of both of these parts the apostle makes a break in the style by a transposition there is some perplexity in the language but if we attend carefully to what the apostle says about those two parts the meaning is clear as to the first he says that they were dead and states at the same time the cause of the death trespasses and sins he does not mean simply that they were in danger of death but he declares that it was a real and present death under which they labored. As spiritual death is nothing else than the alienation of the soul from God, and we are all born as dead men, and we live as dead men, until we are made partakers of the life of Christ. Agreeably to the words of our Lord, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live the papists who are eager to seize every opportunity of undervaluing the grace of god say that while we are out of christ we are half dead but we are not at liberty to set aside the declarations of our lord and of the apostle paul that while we remain in adam we are entirely devoid of life and that regeneration is a new life of the soul by which it rises from the dead some kind of life, I acknowledge, does remain in us, while we are still at a distance from Christ, for unbelief does not altogether destroy the outward senses or the will or the other faculties of the soul. But what has this to do with the kingdom of God? What has it to do with a happy life, so long as every sentiment of the mind and every act of the will is death? let this then be held as a fixed principle that the union of our soul with god is the true and only life and that out of christ we are altogether dead because sin the cause of death reigns in us in which for some time ye walked from the effects or fruits he draws a proof that sin formerly reigned in them for until sin displays itself in outward acts men are not sufficiently aware of its power when he adds according to the course of this world he intimates that death which he had mentioned rages in the nature of man and is a universal disease he does not mean that course of the world which god has ordained nor the elements such as the heaven and earth and air but the depravity with which we are all infected so that sin is not peculiar to a few but pervades the whole world according to the prince of the power of the air he now proceeds farther and explains the cause of our corruption to be the dominion which the devil exercises over us a more severe condemnation of mankind could not have been pronounced what does he leave to us when he declares us to be the slaves of Satan, and subject to his will, so long as we live out of the kingdom of Christ? Our condition, therefore, though many treat it with ridicule, or at least with little disapprobation, may well excite our horror. Where is now the free will, the guidance of reason, the moral virtue about which papists babble so much? What will they find that is pure or holy under the tyranny of the devil? on this subject indeed they are extremely cautious and denounce this doctrine of paul as a grievous heresy i maintain on the contrary that there is no obscurity in the apostles language and that all men who live according to the world that is according to the inclinations of their flesh are here declared to fight under the reign of satan in accordance with the practice of the inspired writers the devil is mentioned in the singular number as the children of God have one head, so have the wicked, for each of the classes forms a distinct body. By assigning to him the dominion over all wicked things, ungodliness is represented as an unbroken mass. As to his attributing to the devil power over the air, that will be considered when we come to the sixth chapter. At present, we shall merely advert to the strange absurdity of the Manicheans in endeavouring to prove from this passage the existence of two principles, as if Satan could do anything without the divine permission. Paul does not allow him the highest authority which belongs to the will of God alone, but merely a tyranny which God permits him to exercise. What is Satan but God's executioner to punish man's ingratitude? This is implied in paul's language when he represents the success of satan as confined to unbelievers for the children of god are thus exempted from his power if this be true it follows that satan does nothing but under the control of a superior and that he is not an unlimited monarch we may now draw from it also this inference that ungodly men have no excuse in being driven by satan to commit all sorts of crimes whence comes it that they are subject to his tyranny but because they are rebels against god if none are the slaves of satan but those who have renounced the service and refuse to yield to the authority of god let them blame themselves for having so cruel a master by the children of disobedience according to a hebrew idiom are meant obstinate persons unbelief is always accompanied by disobedience so that it is the source the mother of all stubbornness among whom also we all had our conversation. Lest it should be supposed that what he had now said was a slanderous reproach against the former character of the Ephesians, or that Jewish pride had led him to treat the Gentiles as an inferior race, he associates himself and his countrymen along with them in the general accusation. This is not done in hypocrisy, but in a sincere ascription of glory to God it may excite wonder indeed that he should speak of himself as having walked in the lusts of the flesh while on other occasions he boasts that his life had been throughout irreproachable touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless and again ye are witnesses and god also how holily and justly and unblamably we behaved ourselves among you that believe i reply the statement applies to all who have not been regenerated by the spirit of christ however praiseworthy in appearance the life of some may be because their lusts do not break out in the sight of men there is no thing pure or holy which does not proceed from the fountain of all purity fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind to fulfil these desires is to live according to the guidance of our natural disposition and of our mind the flesh means here the disposition, or what is called the inclination of the nature. And the next expression means what proceeds from the mind. Now the mind includes reason, such as it exists in men by nature, so that lusts do not refer exclusively to the lower appetites, or what is called the sensual part of man, but extends to the whole. And were by nature children of wrath. All men without exception, whether Jews or Gentiles, are here pronounced to be guilty until they are redeemed by christ so that out of christ there is no righteousness no salvation and in short no excellence children of wrath are those who are lost and who deserve eternal death wrath means the judgment of god so that the children of wrath are those who are condemned before god such the apostle tells us had been the jews such had been all the excellent men that were now in the church and they were so by nature that is from their very commencement and from their mother's womb this is a remarkable passage in opposition to the views of the pelagians and of all who deny original sin what dwells naturally in all is certainly original but paul declares that we are all naturally liable to condemnation therefore sin dwells naturally in us for god does not condemn the innocent pelagians were wont to object that sin spread from adam to the whole human race not by descent but by imitation but Paul affirms that we are born with sin, as serpents bring their venom from the womb. Others who think that it is not in reality sin are not less at variance with Paul's language, for where condemnation is, there must unquestionably be sin. It is not with blameless men, but with sin, that God is offended. Nor is it wonderful that the depravity which we inherit from our parents is reckoned as sin before God, for the seeds of sin, before they have been openly displayed, are perceived and condemned. But one question here arises. Why does Paul represent the Jews, equally with others, as subject to wrath and curse, while they were the blessed seed? I answer, they have a common nature. Jews differ from Gentiles in nothing but this, that, through the grace of the promise, God delivers them from destruction. But that is a remedy which came after the disease." another question is since god is the author of nature how comes it that no blame attaches to god if we are lost by nature i answer there is a twofold nature the one was produced by god and the other is the corruption of it this condemnation therefore which paul mentions does not proceed from god but from a depraved nature for we are not born such as adam was at first created we are not wholly a right seed but are turned into the degenerate offspring of a degenerate and sinful man but god who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with christ by grace ye are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in christ jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through christ jesus but God, who is rich in mercy. Now follows the second member of the sentence, the substance of which is that God had delivered the Ephesians from the destruction to which they were formerly liable, but the words which he employs are different. God, who is rich in mercy, hath quickened you together with Christ. The meaning is that there is no other life than that which is breathed into us by Christ, so that we begin to live only when we are engrafted into him and enjoy the same life with himself this enables us to see what the apostle formerly meant by death for that death and this resurrection are brought into contrast to be made partakers of the life of the son of god to be quickened by one spirit is an inestimable privilege on this ground he praises the mercy of god meaning by its riches that it had been poured out in a singularly large and abundant manner the whole of our salvation is here ascribed to the mercy of god but he presently adds for his great love wherewith he loved us. This is a still more express declaration that all was owing to undeserved goodness, for he declares that God was moved by this single consideration. Herein, says John, is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. We love him because he first loved us. Even when we were dead in sin. These words have the same emphasis as similar expressions in another epistle for when we were yet without strength in due time christ died for the ungodly but god commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for us whether the words by grace ye are saved have been inserted by another hand i know not but as they are perfectly agreeable with the context, I am quite willing to receive them as written by Paul. They show us that he always feels as if he had not sufficiently proclaimed the riches of divine grace, and accordingly expresses by a variety of terms the same truth, that everything connected with our salvation ought to be ascribed to God as its author. And certainly, he who duly weighs the ingratitude of men will not complain that this parenthesis is superfluous. And hath raised us up together the resurrection and sitting in heaven which are here mentioned are not yet seen by mortal eyes yet as if those blessings were presently in our possession he states that we have received them and illustrates the change which has taken place in our condition when we were led from adam to christ it is as if we had been brought from the deepest hell to heaven itself and certainly although as respects ourselves our salvation is still the object of hope Yet in Christ we already possess a blessed immortality and glory, and therefore he adds in Christ Jesus. Hitherto it does not appear in the members, but only in the head. Yet in consequence of the secret union, it belongs truly to the members. Some render it through Christ, but for the reason which has been mentioned, it is better to retain the usual rendering in Christ. We are thus furnished with the richest consolation. Of everything which we now want, we have a sure pledge and foretaste in the person of Christ that in the ages to come. The true and final cause, the glory of God, is again mentioned that the Ephesians, by making it the subject of earnest study, might be more fully assured of their salvation. He likewise adds that it was the design of God to hallow in all ages the remembrance of so great goodness. This exhibits still more strongly the hateful character of those by whom the free calling of the Gentiles was attacked for they were endeavouring instantly to crush that scheme which was destined to be remembered throughout all ages. But we too are instructed by it, that the mercy of God, who is pleased to admit our fathers into the number of his own people, deserves to be held in everlasting remembrance. The calling of the Gentiles is an astonishing work of divine goodness, which ought to be handed down by parents to children and to their children's children, that it may never be forgotten or unacknowledged by the sons of men. THE RICHES OF HIS GRACE IN HIS KINDNESS The love of God to us in Christ is here proved, or again declared, to have its origin in mercy. That he might show, says he, the exceeding riches of his grace. How? In his kindness towards us, as the tree is known by its fruit. Not only, therefore, does he declare that the love of God was free, but likewise that God displayed in it the riches, the extraordinary preeminent riches of his grace. It deserves notice also that the name of Christ is repeated, for no grace, no love, must be expected by us from God except through his mediation. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. For by grace are ye saved this is an inference from the former statements having treated of election and of effectual calling he arrives at this general conclusion that they had obtained salvation by faith alone first he asserts that the salvation of the ephesians was entirely the work the gracious work of god but then they had obtained this grace by faith on one side we must look at god and on the other at man God declares that he owes us nothing, so that salvation is not a reward or recompense, but unmixed grace. The next question is, in what way do men receive that salvation which is offered to them by the hand of God? The answer is by faith, and hence he concludes that nothing connected with it is our own. If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, which strips us of all commendation, it follows that salvation does not come from us ought we not then to be silent about free-will and good intentions and fancied preparations and merits and satisfactions there is none of these which does not claim a share of praise in the salvation of men so that the praise of grace would not as paul shows remain undiminished when on the part of man the act of receiving salvation is made to consist in faith alone. All other means on which men are accustomed to rely are discarded. Faith, then, brings a man empty to God, that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. And so he adds, not of yourselves, that, claiming nothing for themselves, they may acknowledge God alone as the author of their salvation. Not of works. Instead of what he had said that their salvation is of grace, he now affirms that it is the gift of God. Instead of what he had said, not of yourselves, he now says, not of works. Hence we see that the apostle leaves nothing to men in procuring salvation. In these three phrases, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, he embraces the substance of his long argument in the epistle to the Romans and to the Galatians, that righteousness comes to us from the mercy of God alone. Is offered to us in christ by the gospel and is received by faith alone without the merit of works this passage affords an easy refutation of the idle cavil by which papists attempt to evade the argument that we are justified without works paul they tell us is speaking about ceremonies but the present question is not confined to one class of works nothing can be more clear than this the whole righteousness of man which consists in works nay the whole man and everything that he can call his own is set aside we must attend to the contrast between god and man between grace and works why should god be contrasted with man if the controversy related to nothing more than ceremonies papists themselves are compelled to own that paul ascribes to the grace of god the whole glory of our salvation but endeavour to do away with this admission by another contrivance this mode of expression they tell us is employed because god bestows the first grace it is really foolish to imagine that they can succeed in this way, since Paul excludes man and his utmost ability, not only from the commencement, but throughout, from the whole work of obtaining salvation. But it is still more absurd to overlook the Apostle's inference, lest any man should boast. Some room must always remain for man's boasting, so long as, independently of grace, merits are of any avail paul's doctrine is overthrown unless the whole praise is rendered to god alone and to his mercy and here we must advert to a very common error in the interpretation of this passage many persons restrict the word gift to faith alone but paul is only repeating in other words the former sentiment his meaning is not that faith is the gift of god but that salvation is given to us by god or that we obtain it by the gift of god for we are his work by setting aside the contrary supposition he proves his statement that by grace we are saved that we have no remaining works by which we can merit salvation for all the good works which we possess are the fruit of regeneration hence it follows that works themselves are a part of grace when he says that we are the work of god this does not refer to ordinary creation by which we are made men we are declared to be new creatures because not by our own power but by the spirit of christ we have been formed to righteousness. This applies to none but believers. As the descendants of Adam, they were wicked and depraved, but by the grace of Christ they are spiritually renewed and become new men. Everything in us, therefore, that is good, is the supernatural gift of God. The context explains this meaning. We are His works, because we have been created not in Adam but in Christ Jesus, not to every kind of life but to good works what remains now for free-will if all the good works which proceed from us are acknowledged to have been the gifts of the spirit of god let godly readers weigh carefully the apostle's words he does not say that we are assisted by god he does not say that the will is prepared and is then left to run by its own strength he does not say that the power of choosing a right is bestowed upon us and that we are afterwards left to make our own choice such is the idle talk in which those persons who do their utmost to undervalue the grace of god are accustomed to indulge but the apostle affirms that we are god's work and that everything good in us is his creation by which he means that the whole man is formed by his hand to be good it is not the mere power of choosing a right or some indescribable kind of preparation or even assistance but the right will itself which is his workmanship Otherwise, Paul's argument would have no force. He means to prove that man does not in any way procure salvation for himself, but obtains it as a free gift of God. The proof is that man is nothing but by divine grace. Whoever then makes the very smallest claim for man, apart from the grace of God, allows him, to that extent, ability to procure salvation. Created to good works they err widely from Paul's intention, who torture this passage for the purpose of injuring the righteousness of faith. Ashamed to affirm in plain terms, and aware that they could gain nothing by affirming that we are not justified by faith, they shelter themselves under this kind of subterfuge. We are justified by faith, because faith, by which we receive the grace of God, is the commencement of righteousness, but we are made righteous by regeneration, because being renewed by the Spirit of God, we walk in good works. In this manner they make faith a door by which we enter into righteousness, but imagine that we obtain it by our works, or at least they define righteousness to be that uprightness by which a man is formed anew to a holy life. I care not how old this error may be, but they err egregiously who endeavor to support it by this passage. We must look to Paul's design. He intended to show that we have brought nothing to God, by which he might be laid under obligation to us, and he shows that even the good works which we perform have come from God. Hence it follows that we are nothing except through the pure exercise of his kindness. Those men, on the other hand, infer that the half of our justification arises from works. But what has this to do with Paul's intention, or with the subject which he handles? it is one thing to inquire in what righteousness consists and another to follow up the doctrine that it is not from ourselves by this argument that we have no right to claim good works as our own but have been formed by the spirit of god through the grace of christ to all that is good when paul lays down the cause of justification he dwells chiefly on this point that our consciences will never enjoy peace till they rely on the propitiation for sins Nothing of this sort is even alluded to in the present instance. His whole object is to prove that, by the grace of God, we are all that we are, which God hath prepared. Beware of applying this, as the Pelagians do, to the instruction of the law, as if Paul's meaning were that God commands what is just and lays down a proper rule of life. Instead of this, he follows up the doctrine which he had begun to illustrate that salvation does not proceed from ourselves he says that before we were born the good works were prepared by god meaning that in our own strength we are not able to lead a holy life but only so far as we are formed and adapted by the hand of god now if the grace of god came before our performances all ground of boasting has been taken away let us carefully observe the word prepared on the simple ground of the order of events paul rests the proof that with respect to good works god owes us nothing how so because they were drawn out of his treasures in which they had long before been laid up for whom he called them he justifies and regenerates End of section four.